In Acts chapter 1, with Peter taking the lead according to function, the apostles had to find a replacement for Judas's chariot. And so Peter brought this to their attention and gave the requirements concerning this one that would join with them as the apostles. And then Peter, in verse 22, made crystal clear what the objective was. He said that this one would become with us a witness of the Lord's resurrection. So this is the apostles' understanding of what they were and what they were to do at any cost. And their witness, their testimony of the resurrected Christ, of Christ in his resurrection, is the central matter in the book of Acts. But I want to take some time at the beginning to trace the steps by which the apostles became such witnesses. The Lord began his public ministry when he was about 30 years old. He finished his course as a man at the age of 33 and a half. Surely, the ones he called to be his disciples, his apostles, were younger than he was, very likely in their 20s. After the Father revealed to them through Peter that Christ was the Son of the living God, and the Lord spoke about building his church against which the gates of Hades, the power of death, will not prevail. And then he went on very clearly to tell these disciples that he would go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and on the third day be raised from the dead. He told them that. He will suffer, he will be killed, and he will be raised. But they couldn't hear anything past the word killed. But the Lord tried to sow it into them in the beginning. Then not long afterward, the Lord brought three of them with him to a mountain, probably Hermon. And as the Lord was praying, he was transfigured meaning the glory that was concealed by the shell of his humanity temporarily broke through and his face was shining like the sun and his garments were bright white. 
And the father spoke again concerning his beloved son. Then as they were descending from the mountain, the Lord told the three, do not speak of this until the son of man has been raised from the dead. So another seed was planted into these three, connecting the Lord's entering into glory with his resurrection. Then in John 16, as part of the Lord's final fellowship with the apostles, he had spoken to them about the Father's house, the church, about the organism of the triune God, the Son's vine. Then as he's talking about the function of the Spirit, he made this amazing statement. The world will rejoice. You will grieve. You will lament when I am killed. Then he went on to say, you will be like a woman travailing in birth, experiencing such intense suffering. But then when a man-child is born, she just rejoices in her son. She doesn't wallow in memories of her suffering. This portion of John 16 is crucial. It indicates a man-child will soon be born. <clears throat> and we will see that is the one Paul is proclaiming in Acts 13. That was the birth of the Lord Jesus to be the Son of God in his humanity. So that resurrection would be a birth. And according to the Lord's own speaking to Mary in chapter 20, that birth brought forth brothers. And Peter points out in his epistle, the first one, chapter one, verse three, we were all regenerated when Christ was resurrected. The Lord indicated to those 11 you will be this travailing woman. They would not just be spectators. They're not simply observing. The Lord brought them to the cross with him, not outwardly, but intrinsically, and they became the travailing woman. And then the Lord told him, you will see me again. And when you see me, you will rejoice. Then on the day of his resurrection, the Lord appeared to them with his resurrection body, not bound by space and time, not bound by physical structures, able to come into a room like this without coming through a window or through the door. He just comes. Then he breathed into them. He exhaled and breathed into them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That spirit is the, was the breath 
of the resurrected Christ. They inhaled into their spirit the spirit of resurrection. At that moment, the life of resurrection was imparted to them. So they had gone through this process of hearing the Lord's promise. He would be raised. That his resurrection would involve his glorification. That his resurrection would be a birth to bring forth the man-child, the one new man Christ would create on the cross. Then he appeared pneumatically. He still had a body of flesh and bones, but it's a spiritual body. It's a mystery. And now in John 20, the resurrection life had entered into them. Then over a period of 40 days, he would appear to them again and again. There seems to be no schedule. In John 21, Peter doesn't know what's going on. He said, I'm going fishing. I don't know what you're going to do. I've got, I've got a, at least a wife. I don't know if he had any children. I, I, I've got to do something. We're going with you. And then it's so delightful. The Lord appears early in the morning and I'm paraphrasing him. And he calls out and says, uh, you catching anything? <laughs> you catching anything? Of course, he kept all the fish away all night. He said, the fish are on the other side. So John, the man of insight, recognized this is the Lord. Peter, the man of action, plunges into the water. He brings, what, 120-something fish. Then the Lord doesn't need those fish at all. He says, come have breakfast. Fish and bread. And he fed them breakfast, indicating, I, the resurrected Christ, I'm going to take care of your needs in my way and in my time. Don't rely upon your fishing expertise. I can keep all the fish away. Okay, please don't send me a text or an email asking where the Lord got the fish. I don't know where he got them. I don't know how he, he, he baked them. They were just there. So we know from Acts chapter 1 verse 3 that whenever the Lord would appear to them over those 40 days, he spoke to them concerning the kingdom. And we will see, Lord willing, tomorrow morning how this is the goal of the ministry of the propagation of the resurrected Christ. Then they saw him ascend. And Luke wrote his gospel. He wrote Acts. Both described the ascension. In Luke, the Lord presents the Lord as, as he's reaching out his hands and blessing them. And as he ascends, he's blessing them. Then we know from Acts, a cloud appeared and took him out of their sight. 
We can't explain the mystery. I believe he broke through the fabric of space-time, entered the heavens as another realm, and became the Lord of all. He had already told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then they, he told them, you will be my witnesses, go to Jerusalem. The power of the Spirit will come upon you. In John 20, they received and permanently contained the resurrected Christ as the life-giving Spirit. They had the life of resurrection. Then in chapter 2 of Acts, when the Spirit was poured out upon them, they now had the power of resurrection. And with this life and this power, they began to testify. So Peter stood in front of the religious leaders who perhaps about six weeks earlier, had participated in the killing of the Lord Jesus, Peter told them, the one you killed is alive. And he is at the right hand of God. He is the Lord of all. Then as mentioned last night in chapter 4, after the church prayed powerfully in one accord, We're told in verse 33, with great power, the apostles testified concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So in Acts, you have a clear line of the apostles testifying with power regarding the Lord's resurrection. They themselves were filled and clothed with the power of resurrection, the power against which nothing can stand. But there's another line in Acts. And it's given little attention And maybe most readers of Acts are just lacking the insight. And that is the line of resurrection life. In John 12, 24, the Lord likened himself to a grain of wheat that will fall into the ground and die to produce many grains. So his death was the life-releasing death. His resurrection was a life-imparting resurrection. And we all became grains produced in Christ's resurrection. Grains of wheat. Then the Lord said this, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And I've mused upon this from time to time. And I believe I have an impression from the spirit that is accurate. According to the context, what does it mean for me as a grain, for you as a grain, 
to follow the Lord. It's to fall into the ground and die. And that's exactly what Margaret E. Barber did in the mainland of China when she returned and stayed in that little village of Pagoda, did not do anything outward, but ministered to the young men that learned of her and would come to her. And Brother Ni was among them. Eventually all the others stopped coming because she was too, too strong, too direct. He stayed. So you have this line, not of power, but of resurrection life, a life that enters into death, doesn't avoid it. It enters into death. It passes through death. It conquers death. And it brings forth life out of death. Well, we see, it's very vividly portrayed in Acts in two incidents. First is in chapter 7. Where you have this young man, Stephen. I don't see how he's beyond his 20s. But age is really not the important matter. And he was among those distributing food to widows. A practical service. But the requirement for that service is that you had to be full of the spirit and full of faith. But because he was full of faith, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, his testimony was prevailing. And so it stirred up the opposition from the religious establishment. They, like religionists today, online, day and night, lie without any compunction, without realizing every word they put online, unless they repent, is remembered and will be brought before them on the day of judgment, according to Matthew 12. They lied all kinds of things. Then they brought him before the Sanhedrin, the religious court, and he began to speak. His face was shining like an angel. No one could resist the spirit by which he spoke. Then he said, I see the heavens opened. I see the Son of Man. And at this point, they, they were beside themselves, no more talking. They began to stone him. And I believe there were two God-men in this scene. Stephen was looking at the Son of Man. And the Son of Man was looking at his reproduction in Stephen. And how did Stephen pray? He didn't say, Lord, avenge my death. Come in with judgment. He said, don't hold this sin against them. This is Jesus living again. Then as he was breathing his last, he said, Lord, receive my spirit. Then he fell asleep. 
Last night, I just had the sense to check whether my memory is right concerning the following verse. Because the point I'm going to make is necessary. There was a tremendous testimony, a glorious victory, a young brother finishing his course victoriously. But the next verse says, devout men came for to bury the body of Stephen and great lamentation was over him. That touches me. Why? Because it reminds us that on the one hand, we have the resurrection, resurrection Christ, the resurrected Christ, Christ as resurrection living in us. We proclaim his victory over death. We have the power of resurrection upon us. With this power, we testify. But we are human beings with human feelings. And when there is a loss of any dear one, we lament. We weep, we mourn, we cry because we're God-men in the humanity of Jesus. And Paul understood this very well. So when he wrote his first epistle to the Thessalonians, he said, I want to comfort you concerning those who are asleep, who have passed away. And he said this, I will tell you so that you do not grieve as others who have no hope. He didn't say, I wrote this to you, that you will have no feeling, that you will be a hero, that you will be a stoic. You will grieve because you're human. But even in your grieving, you testify the power and life of resurrection. Then that death of Stephen was a seed sown into the ground. Then what happened? Persecution in Jerusalem. Everyone left except the apostles. The testimony spread to so many places. The issue in that release of resurrection life was propagation, duplication, multiplication. And then it continued. Now we come to chapter 12. And we know from, say, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, that two of the young apostles, motivated by their mother, Matthew's gospel mentions the mother was behind the request of the sons. So James and John came to the Lord Jesus with a request. He asked, what do you want me to do for you? They said, when you come in your kingdom, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. No, I can't prove this. I think they were both saying in their heart, 
me on the right hand, he on the left hand. And then the Lord asked them a question. Can you drink the cup that I will drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? Referring to his death, they said, we will. And he said, you will drink the cup. You will participate in this baptism. But it's not up to me to promise anything to you. I believe John, the brother of James, never forgot this. Because in chapter 12 of Acts, James, his brother, was murdered, was killed. This time by the Romans. And Peter was put into prison. And the church prayed, especially indicated by the mention of Mary's house, especially the the sisters prayed. Prayers of ascension. Prayers realizing this is not the way Peter ends. Peter told us what the Lord said to him. This is not the time. This is not the end. But the point is this. James was another seed. Still very young. Then what happened? Read chapter 13. The flow to Europe, comes out of Antioch. You think there's no spiritual connection? This is the intrinsic, life-releasing side. And I'm not faithful to you if I don't present the whole picture of our being witnesses of Christ's resurrection. We are witnesses of the power of his resurrection. As Peter said in Acts 2, the bonds of death, they couldn't hold him. Nothing could hold him. John recorded the Lord's word in Revelation 1. I am the living one. Behold, I was dead and I'm alive. I'm I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. Power long, Paul desired to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So we need the empowerment. We need the economical spirit. We need ourselves to experience this extraordinary power that raised Christ from the dead. But at the same time, and this is the costly part, We must follow the Lord's way to reproduce himself through death and resurrection. And we've seen this again and again. We cannot explain the Lord's ways. At least during the present age, he is not explaining his ways. Why this happens, why that happens. Why this happened now? Why this happened this way? He knows the deep longing in us. He knows. But he also knows 
of the seven plus billion humans on the earth and the hundreds of millions of real Christians on the earth, there are very, very few fully consecrated to him who will allow him to do with them whatever is in his heart to carry out God's eternal purpose. And by the Lord's mercy, if not all of us, many of us in this room this morning, we took this way. It's the costly way, the constricted way, but it leads to life. That some years ago, I needed to visit, I was not needed, I was making an annual visit to the church in San Francisco. And during a rather short period of time, among those who passed away were two of the elders. The whole church was walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We have no answers. Our God may be silent, but resurrection life is always active. Amen. I'm here not first to give you a message. I'm here with you as a witness of the reality of the power and the life of the resurrection of the God-man Jesus. We love to sing that hymn, Death Cannot Hold the Resurrection Life. Okay, now we have the foundation to cover what is the burden in this message, propagating the resurrected Christ as the firstborn son. And here, where we're going with this, there's one central point. If this, based upon the testimony concerning resurrection, enters into you, then my burden will be released. We have to know the one whom we are propagating. There's a very specific aspect of the all-inclusive Christ in resurrection. And that is his being the firstborn son. Now I'd like to refer to you to a verse I'm becoming to love very much in Acts. Chapter 5, verse 14. And believers were all the more being added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Okay? Believers added to the Lord. Amen. Doesn't say here added to the church. Added to the Lord. How? Let's think about this even if we can only see through a glass darkly, how can one person 
have other persons added to him. But that's what it says. The Lord is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord. And believers are being added to him. Doesn't that indicate that the Lord is increasing? The Lord is being reproduced. The Lord is enlarging. He's expanding. He is being propagated. Well, this involves the truth. So we must be exact and as clear as we can regarding it. So just to give you a summary, then we can go through the outline, and I believe the points will mainly speak for themselves. God is the one true living God. He is self-existing, ever-existing, and eternally, he is triune, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the Son in the Godhead is the only begotten Son. Only begotten means no one else is begotten. Otherwise, you're no longer the only begotten. Therefore, the only begotten son in this status cannot be propagated because that would imperil the unchanging Godhead. But we're still talking about the propagation of Christ and what happened. The only begotten son to carry out a council among the three of the Godhead in the fullness of time was incarnated to be a human being. So the only begotten son incarnated, we know from John 1.18 and 3.16, he became a man with genuine created humanity without sin. And now he's known as the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, he was qualified to die for our redemption because he had the blood to shed, the sinless blood, because he was righteous so he could die on our behalf of the unrighteous in our place. And because he's divine, the effectiveness of his blood is unlimited. It's eternal. Amen. That's why the Apostle John speaks of the blood of Jesus, God's son. It's the blood of Jesus. It has to be the blood of a man. But this man is the son of God. So the Lord Jesus died on the cross as the God-man Jesus. But he had said to the apostles, a woman will travail. You are that woman. And there will be a birth. And that birth will be of a son. 
So what happened when the Lord was resurrected, that to him was his birth. In what way? He was already and always will be the only begotten son in the Godhead. But now he became the son of God with his humanity. When the only begotten son became a man through incarnation. That is God becoming man. When the firstborn son became the son of God with his humanity in resurrection, that was man becoming God. So the Lord's resurrection, we will see the verses in Acts 13, was his birth as the firstborn son. Because he was now the firstborn son, that is why he could say to Mary, go to my brother's. I wrote an article for Affirmation and Critique deliberately meant to challenge the theologians everywhere. I repeat the challenge. I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I just have a verse in my heart. Okay? The Gospel of John clearly reveals that Christ is the only begotten Son. God gave his only begotten Son. Does the only begotten have brothers? Then, then how then... In John 20, does the only begotten son say, go to my brothers? What happened? Is he no longer the only begotten son? That's impossible. The Godhead cannot change. That's because his resurrection was a colossal birth. He was born and we were born. Scott, you and I were regenerated at the same time. We are really our brothers. Amen. That's not some kind of title we use. Amen. Something you use when you don't know someone's name. So you say brother. We really are brothers. Amen. So in resurrection, Christ became the Son of God in this second sense. The Son of God with both divinity and humanity. This is the person we are propagating. Because we will see the only begotten son in John is the embodiment and expression of eternal life. If you want to have eternal life, the life of God, you believe into the son of God. And you are born of God to have eternal life. The only begotten son is for propagation. And this is how the believers are added to the Lord. In two steps. We believe into him. We are baptized into him. We are now one with him. At the same time, he is in us. He as the life-giving spirit is in us. He is divine. 
We are the branches. He is the head. We are the body. But as the Lord indicated to Saul of Tarsus, the church, which is his body, has a very simple designation. Me. Why do you persecute me? This me is Christ with all the believers added to him. And what underlies the burden that was released in Addis Ababa is a fresh burden from the heart of God that this firstborn son will be propagated all over the earth as never before. And when we have an elders training abroad, as we usually do in October, so it's far away, whether it's Australia, Leipzig, Germany, it's, that's the injection point for the whole body. At the same time, the Lord has a particular word for that part of the earth. So this was also true in Addis Ababa. That word was released for the benefit of the whole body. But this word was released because God really loves the people in the continent of Africa. And our heart should be enlarged to match his. I do believe in the years to come, thousands, tens of thousands will be saved. And churches by the dozens, by the scores, will be raised up. I heard from Brother Joel Oladeli, who was born in Nigeria. He's in the U.S., living and serving. He returned to Ethiopia a couple weeks after the training to spend time with them. The brothers there, after their prevailing prayer and genuine fellowship, have already marked out 25 cities in Ethiopia that they will raise up churches in. What a spirit! And so our view is getting into clear focus. Yes, the numbers of the people. There will be more believers. We'll need more meeting halls, more home meetings. More will be in the full-time training. But we have to see beyond that. It is a person, a wonderful, marvelous person who is expanding all over the earth. And it's the Christ who's the firstborn son. He is the one we're propagating. It doesn't mean you have to use that terminology. It's just that you know what's in the father's heart. He wants many, many more children. He's no respecter of persons. We should not be. The resurrection Christ, resurrected Christ Fills us with love. He becomes our love. He makes us love. We will love the Lord. We will love the church. We will love the believers. And we will love all human beings without partiality. We can stand before them. I dare to say this. 
I will stand before you and say, look into my heart. You will see impartial love for all human beings on the earth. So the limitation is gone. Anything that's been holding us back, we're not in a movement. We just want to see the whole earth filled with the corporate expression of Christ. Now, I don't know if that was an opening word or the whole message. I think it was the essence of the message. So now, we'll need plenty of time for sharing it for about half an hour. We'll go through the outline to nail down the points from chapter 13. So we're very clear how this is based on the scriptures. Okay. Title, Propagating the Resurrected Christ as the Firstborn Son. And then Roman numeral one, there's a quotation of two verses from this man's seed, and that man is David. God, according to promise, brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And we announce to you the gospel of the promise made to the fathers. So let me explain before I read. That will make the reading, I think, easier to absorb. In 2 Samuel 7, David had the heart to build a house for God. He really longed for this. And the prophet said, very good, king, do it. Then the Lord appeared to the prophet and gave him a message. So he had to go and speak to David on God's behalf. And essentially, the message is, David, you will not build me a house. But you will have a seed, a descendant. And he will be my son. Your descendant will be my son. And he will build the house. Okay, this was a prophecy in typology that is with a symbol. So on one level, it was a prophecy to David that your son Solomon will build the temple. But actually, it was a prophecy that a descendant of David, centuries to come, and the Messiah was called son of David. Jesus is the son of David. His, his parents were in the genealogy from two sides. That, David, one of your descendants, I will call him my son. And that one whom I call my son, he will build the house. So that is a prophecy saying that the Lord Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise made to David. This God-man Jesus the seed of David. He is the one promised. 
And then Paul goes on to say, the gospel we are announcing is the gospel of this promise. So God's thought when speaking to David through the prophet was that his only begotten son through incarnation would become a descendant of David. He would be the God-man who in resurrection will be the son of God with his humanity and he will build the house which is the church. So this is a continuation of the thought in John 16 that the resurrection will be a birth. A, the seed of David mentioned in 2 Samuel 7, 12 is actually Christ as God's firstborn son who has both divinity and humanity and is typified by Solomon. B, the word concerning your seed in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and my son in verse 14 implies that the seed of David would become the son of God. That is, a human seed would become a divine son. In his humanity, the Lord has a genealogy. With regarding the kingdom, please read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Regarding his humanity, read the genealogy in Luke that goes all the way back to Adam. And so the Lord in his humanity is a descendant of certain ones. So in his humanity, he's the seed of David. Very interesting. In Matthew, during the week of questioning by the religious ones, one question after another, the Lord subdued them every time. And then he said, uh, no, I have a question. What do you say concerning the Christ? Whose son is he? Tell me. You're the theologians. What is your understanding concerning the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, oh, we know. David's son. Okay. Then why did David call him Lord? No answer. David could call him Lord because his son, his seed, would eventually be the Lord of heaven and earth. Amen. And even be the savior of his own father and of everybody else. So this portion of the scripture was open to, to Paul after he was saved. I believe he was a genius. But he was saturated with the Old Testament. Oh, then the waves of light come. He's getting revelation after revelation after revelation. Wow, Jesus is the seed of David. 
One, this corresponds with Paul's word in Romans 1, 3, and 4, concerning Christ as the seed of David, being designated the Son of God in his humanity in resurrection. Actually, that is his gospel. Paul began Romans by saying, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, in the gospel concerning his son. Then he points out the gospel concerning God's son is the gospel regarding the seed of David becoming the son of God in his resurrection. And that's the gospel he preached in Acts. Two, these verses clearly reveal that the seed of man, that is a son of man, can become the son of God. Okay, some of you, you're either blessed or you're challenged in this way. That your mind is working very fast. You can see ahead. Can you see in this the implication that if the seed of David, a man, can become God in resurrection, then it's possible for other human beings to become God in life and nature. But of course, not in the Godhead. And, and they're the many brothers, right? Quite wonderful. God himself, the divine one, became a human seed. The seed of a man, David. This seed was Jesus, the God-man, who was the Son of God by virtue of his divinity alone. I emphasize, in the Godhead, he will always be the only begotten Son. We do not enter into the Godhead. We do not become part of the Godhead. We are one with God in his economy, in the all-inclusive Christ. The Godhead is unchanging. The eternal Son is unchanging. But the one who is the only begotten Son, in time, in space, became a human, the Son of Man, and in resurrection, the Son of Man became the Son of God, the firstborn Son. Okay, firstborn not only begotten, firstborn, who else is going to be born? Praise the Lord, all of us, and so many more. This is not an accident. I might as well challenge you to the uttermost. We should love the, we love the Lord from our whole heart, from our whole soul, from our whole mind. Let our whole mind be engaged. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses, one, verses 4 and 5. Paul is talking about before the foundation of the universe in eternity past, God chose us to be holy. Verse 4. Verse 5. God predestinated us unto sonship. God decided this before there was a universe. He didn't ask your permission. He didn't ask for any votes. He said, I want to have a corporate expression of my son in the whole universe. 
in order to have this, I must create a universe and solar systems and galaxies and planets and the earth and human beings and millions of people. I'm very clear about all of them. And I'm choosing you to be a son, to be holy. And I'm predestinating you to be a son. That's it. Like it or not, this is your eternal destiny. You're going to be a son of God forever and ever. Amen. So this was worked out in time. Because that's the son's responsibility to come as a man, work out the whole thing, deal with all the negative things, destroy the work of the devil, destroy the devil himself, deal with every negative thing, release the divine life, be, be born as the firstborn son, produce all the many sons. So this needs to sink into us. Our father, it's not only the Lord's desire, we need to touch the feeling in the Father's heart. He wants many, many more children. And, and this is what we're for. We, want, we just rejoice, you know, in Luke 15. There is joy in heaven. The angels in heaven rejoice every time one person repents and believes in the Lord. How about the year 2019 be a year of rejoicing in heaven? Amen. That we just ask the Lord for this kind of propagation. Amen. Little C, through his resurrection, he as the human seed became the son of God in his humanity as well. Now we quote verse 33. And this again shows the light Paul received directly. God has fully fulfilled this promise to us, their children, in raising up his son, Jesus. God fulfilled this promise made to David by raising up Jesus. Then Paul quotes a verse from Psalm 2. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son. This day have I begotten you. Okay? He didn't just say you are my son. This day. Okay? I want to know what is this day? We shouldn't just read passively. We read this and say, Lord, what is this day? It must matter, must matter to you. You mentioned it. Then Paul will say, you want to know what day? That was the day Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Amen. On that day, God begot him as the son in humanity and declared, you are my son. Amen. Maybe in eternity we'll find out. Maybe the father will communicate to us in the son what went on. That resurrection morning, what was going on in heaven, the Father would say, all oh, the myriads of angels, cherubim, the seraphim, the living creatures, they all bear witness. I just declared, this is my son. These are my sons and whom, whom I have begotten. Oh, we, I want to bring joy to God's heart. I want the Father to be happy. A, in verses 32 and 33, 
we see that Christ as the firstborn son of God was promised to the fathers. And God fulfilled this promise by raising up Jesus. Resurrection was a birth to the man Jesus. He was begotten by God in his resurrection to be the firstborn son of God among many brothers. He was the only begotten son from eternity. After his resurrection, incarnation, after his incarnation, through resurrection, he was begotten by God in his humanity to be God's firstborn son in a very real sense. This truth concerning the firstborn son of God is a dividing line between the scriptural teaching presented through the ministry and the Lord's recovery and traditional theology. You're not going to find this. But I predict what will happen, a little sidebar, because I know the mindset. Certain real seeking brothers that are pastors they love the Lord. They're walking in the light that they have. We respect them. We ask the Lord to bless them. They will get a hold of certain ministry and they'll start giving messages on the firstborn son of God. I assure you, they will not credit any one of us. They will not credit Brother Lee, but we can join Brother Lee in saying, we don't want any credit. We're just happy that the truth goes out. Yeah. Right? Hallelujah. We just want the truth to go out. All the glory goes to God. See, Paul was able to see the Lord's resurrection in Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There are doctoral dissertations written over Psalm 2. There's all kinds of debates about Psalm 2, verse 7. The only problem is they're all written in darkness. Okay? I say this for the fun of it. I ain't got no PhD, but by the Lord's mercy, I got some light on this verse. You want to know how I got the light? I want you to know how I got the light. I got the light through the help of a man from Chifu, China. I owe all of this to him. I just honor him. I don't, he doesn't replace the Lord. But I don't want to give the impression that I got it all by myself. I don't get much all by myself. It comes from the Lord and it comes through the body. So glory be to God. Paul applied the word today to the day of the Lord's resurrection. This means that Christ's resurrection was his birth as the firstborn son of God. Jesus, the son of man, was born to be the son of God through being raised up from the dead. Therefore, God's raising up Jesus from the dead was his begetting of him to be his firstborn son. Amen. D, through incarnation, God's only begotten son put on humanity and became the God-man. So the humanity he put on 
was the humanity that God produced in his original creation. It's sinless. That's why the Bible is very precise. John 1.14, the word became flesh. Romans 8.3, God sent his son in the likeness of the flesh of sin. So apparently, he was the same as everybody else. Except the element of sin was not in him. His humanity was sinless, but it was not divine. It was not part of the sonship until resurrection. One, before incarnation, God's only begotten son did not have the human nature. He had only the divine nature. In resurrection, God's firstborn son has the human nature as well as the divine nature. So God became a man to take on the human nature. In his resurrection, this human nature was divinized, was brought into the divine sonship. So this firstborn son is the prototype, the model for his reproduction. He is the pattern of God becoming man and men becoming God. And now, according to Romans 8, he, the prototype, is operating within us by the law of the spirit of life to conform us to the image of God's son. Verse 29, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, let me just point out to you, I'm being a little facetious here, how difficult this is going to be for you to reach full sonship. You just consider all the effort, all the effort you put into your development from the time you were a single seed in your mother's womb until you're growing into a little human in the womb, and there are little humans in the womb. That's what they are. Then you were born as an infant. I don't think Brother Willie was 6'8". Sorry, you didn't make it to 6'9", like magic, okay? <laughs> That's God's sovereignty. <laughs> okay. but, in, but, but in you is the human life with its law, and that governed your whole development. Your parents loved you, they took care of you, they provided the environment, but you didn't do any work. I have been observing the development of Tim, humanly and spiritually, since he came to the full-time training. Observing in love and always being encouraged when I see him. The Lord cover him. He's got a way to go, but he's come a long way already. And he's going all the way. All the way to kingship. All the way to the wedding feast. And there's just no labor. Really what the Lord wants us to do is really simple. Just come to him, open your being to him, believe in him, love him, enjoy him, receive his dispensing, and then follow the sense of life little by little, and the law of life is going to make you a glorified son of God. And we like to see this happen in a lot more people. May I ask you right now, as you're sitting here, 
Does anyone, does the name of any person cross your mind right now that you know, as far as you know, is not saved? That you would like to see that person saved and regenerated very soon? Then how about sometime today? We, we pray for this. I want to mention again the name who's on my heart. That after the Itero, I went with my wife and some others to Israel for a tour. And J.J. Travel took us up to the Golan Heights. And there was a kibbutz there. And we got to drive around. And there was a young man, now he's 27, named Eris, E-R-I-S, who gave us quite a presentation of the whole situation of Syria in relation to Israel and how complicated it is. And as he was speaking, I had such a sense about him, Eris, that the Lord wants to save him dynamically and really raise him up to be a channel in Israel. So can we all agree that for the sake of the propagation of the firstborn son, God will soon save Ezri? Eris. Lord, save Eris. Add him to yourself for the sake of your testimony in Israel. And so we put this all together. We see the vision of the divine sonship, the corporate expression of Christ as the firstborn son, we as the many sons. We, just, we don't try to stir up anything. We come to the Lord. We pray like this. Lord, cause the desire of your heart to become the desire of my heart. Then you realize how much the Lord loves people, how he wants more and more to be added to him. Acts 13 is very profound, very exact. You'll read a verse that says, as many has ordained to eternal life, believe. We don't know who they are. So we're just non-discriminatory. We just sow the seed everywhere. We're open to talk to anyone. But we just long for the enemy to lose more ground and for God to gain more ground by reproducing his firstborn son. E. Through his resurrection, Christ was born to be the firstborn son. And at the same time, all his believers were born to be the many sons of God. With resurrection, there's no time factor. You're just beyond space and time. So when he was resurrected, you were regenerated. So we all had the same spiritual birthday. This was God's view. That's why in his ascension, The Lord, in fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah, I think in chapter 8, could stand before the Father and say, Behold, I and the children you have given me. I left, Father, as your only begotten Son. I return, Father, to my status in the Godhead, but I'm also your firstborn Son. And look, look look at the result And how the father would be touched. My beloved son. I I gave you. And you obeyed me unto the end. You were obedient unto death. 
No, I raise you up. I give you the highest name. I believe there's just unspeakable, glorious worship in heaven. This is a reality. One among these, these many sons, only the firstborn is God's only begotten son. So he remains that. We will worship him. We will not receive worship. We will never be objects of worship. He is in the Godhead. We worship him. So get ready in that marriage. The husband and wife are one in almost every way except for the Godhead. So your husband happens to be God. okay? (laughs) The redeeming God. And so we're very clear on the truth. So in Romans 8.29, we are predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He will be the firstborn. He will have the preeminence. But as the firstborn, he will be the only begotten. We have to be clear about this. Nothing can affect his status in the Godhead, but neither should we shy back from boldly declaring the truth concerning his becoming the firstborn son. This only begotten son of God in his resurrected humanity is also the firstborn son of God. The firstborn son has divinity and humanity. And we, his believers, as God's many sons, also possess both the human nature and the divine nature. Read Hebrews chapter 2. Those who are sanctified, the one who sanctifies, are all out of one. For this reason, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. The Lord will call us brothers. He just said, look, I'm ascending to my father, and he's your father. I'm ascending to my God, and he's your God. So, I, I don't know you, your name, I don't know you, your name, but I know one thing is re- really clear. You really are my brother. Amen. You really are my sister. Amen. And I really am your brother. Amen. But, and so this is just, it's so simple. The church life is just the assembling. It's just all the, the brothers of the firstborn living together, serving together. Proclaiming the gospel together, rejoicing together, grieving together, whatever it is, we're part of this entity. I got a, a heartbreaking text two days ago from a brother I know in Australia. Maybe he's in his early 50s, married for quite a long time to his wife. And she is in ICU, seems no hope to recover from the aneurysm, the massive clot. And he's just asking, Ron, can you say anything to comfort me? Well, teaching, throwing Bible verses never comforted anybody. I just exercised to write something simple, but from the Christ within me. I told him, brother, you will not go through this alone. 
the whole body is going through this with you. And the supply will come through the body. And then I pointed out, I said, brother, let's pray that the Lord will do for your wife what is his will, what is in his heart, and what is the best for her. This is why I mentioned that verse about lamentation. Death will not be abolished until the end of the millennium. I'm looking forward. I want to see that death in Hades thrown into the lake of fire. But until then, it's still with us. But in the midst of it, this is when we bear the most prevailing testimony. That our brother in Sydney, Australia, not just day by day, that's too long a segment of time, not just hour by hour, moment by moment, will receive the bountiful supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Because what we're talking about this morning is a reality. And it's a reality that has a practical expression. So the firstborn has both divinity and humanity, and we as believers, as God's many sons, also possess both the divine nature and the human nature and the divine nature. Finally, the last section. In Acts 13, Paul was not preaching Christ as the only begotten son, as the gospel of John does. Rather, in Acts 13, Paul was preaching Christ as the firstborn son of God for propagation. As the only begotten son, the Lord is the embodiment of the divine life. The Gospel of John emphasizes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that as the Son of God, he is the embodiment of the divine life. Through resurrection, Christ became the firstborn Son of God as the life dispenser for the propagation of life. First, Christ was the only begotten Son as the embodiment of life. Now he is also the firstborn son for the propagation of life. Through his becoming the firstborn son of God in resurrection, the divine life has been dispensed into all his believers to bring forth the propagation of life that is embodied in him. So let's take a minute. I think something we need to offer to the Lord in our prayer. Then we'll have at least 25 minutes to respond. The speaking last night was so good. Just continue this this morning, okay? We need you to complete the message. The message will be completed at 12 o'clock after a few dozen of you got to speak. So let's pray and then prophesy.